Um, yeah, if you're a kiddo, this is the kids' ministry. That's sixth grade and younger. Is, yeah, if you're in sixth grade or, or younger, here you are. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Chris. I don't, I'm going to mess up y'all's stuff. I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, yeah, I'm Chris. I, I, uh, I work in campus ministry at Amherst College and uh, within a varsity. And it's a pleasure and an honor to get to open the word with you today. Um, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts 4, like you heard brilliantly read by that lovely woman. Um, it's my wife. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there, there are Bibles under the pews. I would, uh, yeah, I invite you to have a Bible open. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, um, the point of this time is that we'd study the word together. So, um, let's look at the word together. Um, yeah, if you've been with us, you know that the sermon series this spring is called Ordinary Church. And um, today we're looking at something that ordinarily happens in Jesus' church, which is that Christians bear witness to the gospel in the surrounding community. And so we're going to look at how Peter and John do that. Um, Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, now apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Jesus. Um, and yeah, I think... Uh, well, so here's what we're going to look at, how they bear witness. And, and uh, the three points that we're going to go through, the, the three aspects of ordinary witness that we'll find in the text, are we're going to look at the motivation, the message, and the method of ordinary witness. Motivation, message, and method. Um, before we dig in, let me, let me pray again for us. Um, yeah, and then we'll study the word together. Join me in prayer. Father, we need your spirit to to open our eyes to see the text rightly. God, even, even hearing the testimony of the persecuted church, God, we are um, yeah, ashamed of our quietness about Jesus, ashamed of our fear about sharing. God, I pray that you would use this scripture, God, that you would use this time by your spirit to shake us from our slumber. God, that you would wake up the church out of lukewarm Christianity in this time. God, make us a people who boldly proclaim the message, even at great personal cost. If you would, I invite you to pray for the person on your right and on your left. Uh, just, yeah, pray that God would meet them in this time. Pray that their hearts would be soft to his word. And then pray for yourself. I pray that God would encounter you. That God would challenge your assumptions or uh, that God would most importantly help you see Jesus rightly this morning. Yeah, I pray that he would change you this morning. And God, I, I need your help, God. I, I need you to speak. Lord, I pray that you would, um, yeah, speak through me, God. Give me words like you said that you would, like you, like you promised that you would when we bear witness. Lord, I pray that you would use this time for your glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dive in. Acts 4, we're going to look at the aspects, three aspects of ordinary witness, the motivation, the message, and the method of ordinary witness. So the first point is the motivation for ordinary witness. The motivation for ordinary witness in Jesus' church is seeing the risen Jesus. It's seeing the resurrection. That's, that's why people share. That's the motivation for witness. This is the starting point of the whole thing. Um, if you're with me in the, in the text, look at verse 8, sorry, 18. 19, 20. <laughs> um, 
When, when, the, when the Pharisees, the scribes, and the rulers tell Peter and John, stop preaching, look what Peter says in verse 20. He says, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So the starting point of their witness is what they've seen and heard. It's what they've experienced. And actually, that's, that's pretty intuitive, right? You, I mean, you can't bear witness to something that you haven't seen. You would never call a witness to the stand to bear witness to, to, to something that they haven't experienced. They're not a witness if they haven't seen it, right? So the important thing is what... What have Peter and John seen? We know from the Gospels that they've watched their friend Jesus become a movement leader. They've been swept up in the movement themselves. They've lived with him and watched him love outcasts in society and stupefy the authorities of the day. They watched him expose the hypocrisy of the most established religious leaders, the most religious people of the day. They watched him upset the established order enough that the rulers were concerned that the Roman government was going to get involved. They watched as he was arrested and handed over to the Romans. He was brutally murdered and beaten and killed. And he was buried. And when he was dead and buried, they, Peter and John must have felt foolish for having believed in him. We, we know that Peter was embarrassed to be identified as one of his disciples. He denied Jesus. And then... On Easter morning, these two men had run to the tomb to find it empty. They'd stood in the place where Jesus' body had been laid, but was no longer there. They saw the grave clothes folded up in the empty tomb, and the body gone. They saw the resurrected Christ and ate breakfast with him. They talked face to face with the one who had conquered death. They saw firsthand death being undone. By their friend, Jesus. They'd seen all that. They'd heard Jesus explain the scriptures that all of their religious and cultural history, indeed all of human history, was pointing toward the point when God was going to defeat the power and penalty of sin. They'd seen it accomplished. They'd seen their friend ascend to heaven and heard him utter a promise that he was going to come back. That's what they've seen and heard. That's the motivation for gospel witness. So standing before the very council that had condemned their friend Jesus to death only weeks prior, Peter says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot not speak about what we've seen and heard. You see, out of context, that, that statement is mind-bogglingly bold, right? It's, an, it's insane. And actually, there's a danger that we'll read it and begin to think of Peter and John as superheroes, as people who don't experience the same social anxieties or relational barriers that keep us quiet about Jesus. But do you see that their boldness is actually extremely rational? They've experienced the explosive transformation of witnessing the resurrection. But here's the point. We will never be effective witnesses until we've experienced the resurrected Jesus. This is why Jesus uses the word witness. You have to see him before you can tell people about him. So imagine if, or actually no, remember last fall when the eclipse happened, the solar eclipse? What happened? Everything stopped, right? People all over town were getting out of the drive through line at Starbucks, out of their cars, and staring at the sky, right? Those little, like, little plastic opaque glasses that are useless for everything else were selling off the shelves for like $50 a pair, paper glasses. Everything stopped because there was a cosmic event that was taking place that was undeniable. The sun was being eclipsed. It was insane, and all we could do was talk about it. Our social media pages were full of it, right? Conversations day to day were just, have you seen the eclipse? Are you ready for the eclipse? Do you have the glasses? Where are you going to buy them? 
The truth is that when something becomes strikingly real to you, you talk about it. It becomes a topic of conversation. So that means that our lack of witness is not, a, um, it's not just a, an obedience problem. It's not just a gifting problem or a temperament problem. If we're shy about sharing Jesus, it's not just that we don't have the right personality. It comes down to a worship problem. It means that we haven't seen the resurrected Jesus compellingly enough, strikingly enough. Because when you see something that compelling, when the world is being eclipsed by a new kingdom in your life, you talk about it. It's the natural next step. Do you see what's happening? A new kingdom is coming. Death is defeated. And that rea- when that reality becomes real to a community, we would open our mouths. And this is the very foundation of the rational boldness of the apostles. That uh, The scripture says that these apostles turn the world upside down. The rational boldness that comes from having seen the resurrected Jesus. So step one, the motivation for ordinary witness is seeing Jesus. So the first question for us today is, have you experienced the resurrected Jesus? Have you seen him defeat death for you and in your life? Has the Spirit of God awakened you to the truth that death is defeated and will be defeated? See, the effect of properly seeing Jesus for our witness will mean that we want to bear witness to Jesus. Our witness as a body will begin to look less like reluctant recruitment and more like a life changed by the truth of the resurrection. Our reluctant recruitment will be transformed into a joyful announcement prompted by love for people around us. You've got to hear this. We'll start to be more concerned with our friends than with our friendships. We'll start to be less concerned with how we look and more concerned with how we make Jesus look. That's the effect of seeing Jesus rightly. This is how ordinary people become bold witnesses. They see something extraordinary. Have you seen the extraordinary victory that Christ won? The point of application in this first point for us is that um, for those of us who struggle to be willing witnesses, we have a worship problem. And the way to fix our lack of witness is not merely to grit our teeth. We need to do the work of fixing our eyes on Jesus and praying that God would help us set our hearts and hopes on the resurrection. And then we'll become willing witnesses. So the motivation for ordinary witness is a compelling view of the resurrected Jesus. That's the motivation for ordinary witness. Part two is the message of ordinary witness. What are Peter and John saying? What does it mean to bear witness? What do you have to say? What's the content? I was talking to a friend the other day in, in the dining hall at Amherst, and he was lamenting uh, the status of the political world that we're in, American political situation and geopolitical stuff, and sort of downtrodden. He was like, I don't know how this is going to work out. This is pretty bleak. And, um, and I said to him, that's why I'm really glad that I have a hope that's eternal. That I don't have to trust in the powers of this world to get it right. I know that God is going to make it right someday. And he's sort of like, okay, and left. And uh, I was sitting with a Christian friend, and the Christian friend sort of congratulated me on my boldness, the way that I've, I'd pronounced my, my worldview. And we, we, like, uh, we smiled together, and I basked in the glow of his approval, my friend's approval. Very proud of myself for that. 
And then now I read Peter's witness, and I'm not so proud. Um, while my response may be considered bold in most Christian circles, it's really soft compared to what Peter does. And here's what I mean. Watch what Peter does. What's the message of his witness? For context, there's been a miraculous healing, like we heard about last week, and the people in the temple are fired up. It says that 5,000 men came to believe in Jesus on that day. Men, so that means that including their wives, including the women around them, including the children, probably easily 10,000 people have come to Christ in one day. That's the context. And Peter and John are brought before the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin. It's like the Supreme Court of the theocracy of Israel. And the authorities are upset. Why are they upset? Look in verse 1. It says, As Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see, the Sadducees, the leaders of the temple, were a religious group like the Pharisees, like different political parties there. Uh, they're a religious group, that, but they didn't believe in resurrection. Their theology precluded that possibility. And so they're pissed that Peter and John are preaching about resurrection. And all the people in the temple are fired up and worshiping God in unruly ways, and it's upsetting temple worship. And the Sadducees are in charge of the temple, so they don't know what to do. So they decide to interrogate Peter and John. And they ask them, by what power or by what name did you do this? Um, so we are in, that's verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? Listen to Peter's answer. Read along with me. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. Notice that he's respectful. Right? Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Notice, like I said, that he's respectful, but Peter is presenting a crisis. Let me explain. Um, he's presenting the whole truth honestly in a way that pushes towards a decision, that pushes up against the worldview of the leaders. This is what I mean by presenting a crisis. They, they ask, in effect, how did you do this? And Peter answers, we did it in the name of Jesus. Already, he's bolder than I was. We did it in the name of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, he says, the, the same Jesus that you crucified, the Jesus that God raised from the dead, you rejected him, but God has shown that he is the central figure in our history and in the plan that God is working out from all of creation. He's the cornerstone of the plan of God. You rejected him, but in him and in no one else, there is salvation for us. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Here's the point. Bold witness isn't just bringing up the name Jesus in conversation. Bold witness isn't just talking about eternity or mentioning that you're a Christian, that you go to church. The message of the good news of Jesus is a crisis that demands a response. It's the turning point of all of history. It's the news that death has been defeated, that Jesus is the eternal king, and all of his... And it, He's the king of all, and his kingdom is certainly coming to this earth. That people have to be reconciled to that truth. They have to deal with it. Peter doesn't soften the blow of that. 
So they ask him, how did you heal that guy? And Peter says, it's so much more than just a healing. You don't understand. The way of this world is being eclipsed by something different. There's a new kingdom coming. God has offered one way for salvation. Jesus is it. He's offering salvation to those who have betrayed him. You who rejected him, you can be saved. God is offering an escape from sin and its effects, even for sinners like us. He says, Peter says, we can be saved. He tells the rulers, you killed the anointed one, the Christ, whose divinity, divinity has been authenticated by his resurrection. And you need to hear that there's no other way to be saved than to believe in Jesus. It's very different from the witness that I gave to my friend. See, Peter isn't just sharing theology or an opinion. He's joyfully presenting a world-changing crisis in a way that invites response. So why do I call it a crisis? Simply because in this moment, they have to decide whether they believe the testimony of Jesus' friends. The message about Jesus confronts their whole worldview in a way that means that all of a sudden, they can't have it both ways anymore. They can't go on doing what they've been doing and reconcile this truth to that life. Something has to give. They have to decide if Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, is telling the truth. Because if it's not true, they can go on living as Jewish leaders in the synagogue and everything remains the same after they deal with these crazy disciples of Jesus. They can continue to claim authority over the people in religious matters and exercise their social and political authority. They can keep teaching the Old Testament the same way. They'll have a mess to clean up, but largely the foundation of their life will not be shaken if it's not true. But if it is true, everything changes. Peter doesn't let them escape the weight of what's happening. There's one way for salvation. It must have been extremely unsettling for the religious leaders of the day, those who are in power. It upsets their worldview. It actually totally destroys the status quo. It'll disrupt their religious practices in the temple. It'll probably mean that they're going to have to quit their job. They're probably thinking, we had no idea what we were getting into when we invited these guys into the interrogation room. They just wanted to stop the chaos in the temple. You see, the message of the ordinary gospel witness is a crisis. And it's that same crisis that we still have to deliver today. I think that's why the, the text says the leaders were astonished. They were flabbergasted, awestruck, and they start thinking, who are these guys? Look at verse 13 with me. It says, they were perceived that they, they, sorry, they perceived that they, Peter and John, were uneducated common men. The NIV there says ordinary. They were just ordinary guys. And they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing next to them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So what do they do? They say, you leave. Leave the council. Give us some room to think. Go away with your crisis. So if you're hearing this for the first time today, or if you've never fully and unreservedly committed your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to deal with that crisis. Is Peter telling the truth here or not? I want to invite you to consider the unsettling proposition that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. Regardless of what you think about the morality of Jesus' teaching or how they line up with your own moral code, 
you have to deal with the question of whether or not he resurrected because honestly, you can't really argue with someone who has dominion over death. I know it's unsettling. Actually, I know it's easier to just go home after the service and not think about it anymore, to log it away in the back of your brain and say, yeah, those Christians are crazy. But you have to consider if Jesus rose from the dead. It's easier just to go back as things were. It's extremely disruptive. I understand Jesus disrupts my plans and my thoughts all the time. But I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that he offers salvation for sinners. I want to invite you to consider that. Yeah, this crisis is actually just as, if not more, unsettling for religious folks like me, like many of us in the room, like the council that Peter's talking to. Just like the religious people of that day, if Jesus rose from the dead and there's salvation in Christ alone and in nothing else, that upsets our worldly religion. The rulers of the day, just like us, would have to admit that their, their theology can be flawed. The way that they're reading the Old Testament isn't perfect. It means that Jesus becomes Lord of the Scriptures. It means that like the rulers of the day, we would have to admit that though we think of ourselves as better than others, we really aren't. That we're actually desperate for the salvation that Jesus offers. It means acknowledging that, yeah, that we're just as desperate for salvation as everyone else. That we have nothing to offer God. That Jesus alone can save us. It actually means the absolute and definitive end of self-righteousness forever. It means the end of religious games or posturing before the world and before God. It would actually mean that all of our work towards righteousness is what Paul says is rubbish. It can't save us. Only Jesus can. It means that our Christianity cannot be confined to just the hours of 9 to 11 on Sunday. It means that Jesus becomes Lord of every moment if he actually beat death. It means we need to actively attack the areas of sin in our life where we're harboring disobedience to Jesus because he is Lord of everything. You see, there are no halfway Christians in this story. So for all people, religious or otherwise, whether you're a Christian today or whether you're not a Christian, it's a crisis because it demands our attention, now and forever. We have to decide about Jesus, and there is unequivocally no middle ground. Some of you need to decide or re-decide today. Is Peter's message true or not? Will you throw Jesus out or enthrone him? Will you deny him or devote your life to him completely? Will you leave him alone or love him? There's only two options. Is Jesus Lord of all or not Lord at all? There's no middle ground. Either he rose from the dead or he didn't. And if he did... The only option is to bend the knee to him in every aspect of our life. That's the message of ordinary witness, ordinary gospel witness. The message is a crisis, that Jesus is resurrected, that the ways of this world are being eclipsed by a new kingdom. The application on that is that some of you need to decide today whom you will serve. Ask yourself honestly, do I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And for those of us who are convinced, the application is that we need to bear witness in a way that presses this crisis to the world, that invites a response, that asks for a decision. When your friend says that they like the moral teachings of Jesus, but they aren't sure 
that they believe in God, ask them, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? It's the central question of all of history. One last quick point before we move on to the method of ordinary witness. Notice how Peter shares this message with the awareness that he's a beneficiary of it. Um, Here's what I mean. Peter's standing before the council. This is the same council that condemned his friend to death. What was Peter doing while Jesus was being condemned by the council? Peter was off to the side hiding and denying Jesus and betraying him. Maybe even a more striking condemnation, right? The council doesn't like Jesus for obvious reasons. He's upsetting the status quo, but Peter had devoted his life to Jesus and now is turning his back. And so when Peter says, there is salvation in no one else, for there's, there's no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, you can almost see the joy in his face when he's associating himself with these other people who have betrayed Jesus, these other people who have condemned him, saying, we can be saved even though we betrayed him. There's salvation. If we are to be effective witnesses, we have to share the message with an obvious awareness that we are beneficiaries of the salvation that Jesus offers. We have to to put forth the truth that we are first and foremost beneficiaries of this good news. We are messengers and not messiahs. Peter tells them God is saving even those like you and me who have betrayed him. You've got to get on board with this. Jesus forgave me and he will forgive you if you put your life in his hands. That's the message of ordinary witness that the world is dying to hear. Will you open your mouth? That's the motivation. The motivation is seeing the risen Jesus. The message, the message is a crisis that demands response. And the method of ordinary witness, in, in a word, is relentless. They will not quit. Peter and John have stirred up a problem in the temple. They've been thrown in jail. And like I said, now they're standing before the council that has all religious authority in the theocracy of Israel, they, this is the council that condemned Jesus to death. And they're unashamedly associating themselves with Jesus, the enemy of this council. They're presenting the crisis to the ruling elites of the day with astonishing boldness. Even though they've spent the night in prison, they haven't softened the message. And the truth is that Jesus actually prepared his disciples for this. In Matthew 10, verse 16 through 20. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus tells them before he leaves, he's he's telling his disciples how to bear witness in the world, and he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's going to be difficult. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Did you catch that? Wait, sorry. In in verse 18, it says, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. This is Jesus speaking. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. You're going to be dragged before governors and kings to bear witness. Why are they being dragged before governors and kings? So that they can bear witness. God purposes persecution so that people in power who are hostile to the gospel will have the gospel preached to them. 
Peter and John would never have had the audience of all the rulers of Israel if they hadn't spent the night in prison. If they hadn't upset the status quo enough to be brought before a council that could condemn them to death. Jesus is telling them, they're go- you're going to be flogged so that you can proclaim the gospel. Peter and John would, yeah, they would never have had this audience. And then the rulers tell them to stop. And in verse 9, you heard, you heard Peter, what he said already. He said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The Greek of that cannot but speak is just two negatives. So they tell him, don't preach. And Peter says, we cannot don't preach. We, we cannot not speak about it. I, we can't don't. I hear you, but we can't not. You see, out of obedience to Jesus and motivated by the supreme assurance of the authenticity of his divine claims, he says we cannot rightly stop talking about this. I can't. It is my earnest prayer that God would raise up a generation of believers in this valley who would say that along with Peter. Who would say we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. A group of believers, even as small as the group of the apostles who turned the world upside down, even a group of people like 11 or 12 people, who upon properly viewing the cross and resurrection in all its glory, would devote themselves to spreading the message of resurrection wherever we go, no matter the cost, despising the shame, with all boldness, until Jesus returns or calls us home. That's ordinary witness. Friends, nothing could be more important. I'm convinced from Scripture that two things will happen if we start sharing the gospel like that. The first is that the church will be strengthened. And the second is that we will experience the power and presence of God in our midst. The the reality of this bold witness might sound impossible from the perspective of our retreating American Christianity. To stand up in the midst of persecution seems unattainable or unrelatable, but persecution does actually strengthen the church. And when ordinary people stand up for Jesus in costly ways, the church is strengthened. About a hundred years after this event, Tertullian, who's writing from Carthage, is an early church father in Africa, a hundred years after this event, reflecting on the history of the church and all the martyrdoms that have happened, in summary, he says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He's looking back on the, on the hundred years from this moment on, from this first persecution on, and saying it's the blood of the martyrs that plants the church. And you may not be flogged or killed for standing up for your faith and presenting the gospel boldly and inviting response. But if you boldly declare the crisis of Christ in your workplace and in your classrooms and on your campus, you will certainly find that a church will spring up around you. God will bring people to life in your midst, and your boldness in the face of persecution will serve as an authenticating sign of the gospel to Christians around you. I read about a uh, movement that started in eastern China called the Back to Jerusalem Movement. Uh, started by a guy named Brother Yoon, along with others. Um, but basically, a group of about 50 pastors in eastern China were looking at a map and saw that the most unreached parts of the world, what Christians refer to as the 1040 window, were basically between eastern China 
and Jerusalem. So they started a movement called the Back to Jerusalem Movement, where they were devoting themselves and their lives to march by foot, bringing the gospel from eastern China through central China over like northern India and into the Middle East to Jerusalem to engage the least reached people in the world. People who have the least access to the gospel, the places in the world that are most violently hostile to the gospel, the places where these stories about from the voice of the martyrs come from. And so like I said, about 50 of them said, we're going to do this. And they called the movement Back to Jerusalem movement. And knowing that they would be facing extreme persecution, because Jesus promises that we will if we share the gospel, their training for mission was very different from the way our Western seminary prepares preachers of the gospel. Their training was three parts. The first, how to suffer. The second is how to bear witness to your captors, graciously forgiving those who are beating you. And the third is how to escape. They literally practice breaking out of handcuffs and jumping out of windows so that they know how to fall without breaking their legs so they can run away. So they sent out the first 50 missionaries and the survival rate was bleak. Many of them were killed with little response. But you know what happened? Chinese Christians heard about what they were doing and were so compelled by their boldness and, and by their faith that there was no shortage of pastors for the next wave. People said, y'all believe that Jesus resurrected and I want to get in on that. I want to give my life like that. And so they sent out wave after wave and now they're, they're, this is about 10 years ago, hundreds in the most hostile parts of the world have come to faith because of their witness. Largely untrained, ordinary men bearing the gospel in hostile circumstances at the cost of their lives, and the church is springing up. And like I said, there's no shortage of missionaries in their movement. Bold witness in the face of persecution is plan A for strengthening the church. Because of their simple and relentless mission, hundreds have come to faith. That's the first effect of sharing the gospel. That's what will happen we open our mouths and share this crisis with boldness in the face of persecution, the first thing is that the church will spring up in our midst. The church will be strengthened. The second is that we will experience the presence and power of God in our lives. If you read Jesus' description of what the, the Holy Spirit does, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world right now, starting in John 15, I'm using verse 26, but um, basically in that whole high priestly discourse, John 15, 16, 7, Jesus, 17. Jesus is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the main job of the Holy Spirit, the full-time work of the Holy Spirit right now in the world is to illuminate Christ in the world. To call individuals and communities to see Jesus rightly. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so that means that if you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, and you should, you can jump in on what the Holy Spirit is doing by going to dark places and illuminating Christ. You can participate in the work that the Holy Spirit is doing, and Jesus promises that you will be empowered to speak in moments of persecution. We can actually join into and partner with God in the mission that he's doing in the world. And God has promised that he will show up in power when we are bold. A friend of mine on campus was sharing the gospel with her friend. She, uh, she's just like sick of the small talk. And she's seen Jesus rightly. And her friend is sort of like on the fence about Christianity, like kind of grew up Christian, but not really committed to Jesus. 
And so my friend just was like done with the niceties basically and said, what are your barriers to following Jesus? Do you believe that he's Lord or not? And there was a prolonged awkward silence. And the friend literally got up and left and said, I need to get some ice cream. Just get the crisis away from me. I'm going to go get some ice cream instead of listening to this. I don't want to deal with this. I can't handle this right now. So my friend was pushing the crisis in a way that actually, like, caused some relational rift, right? That's costly. And, um, and so when she told me that story, I said, wow, that's really um, awkward and, and hard. Like, how was that? How are, you, how are you feeling? What did that feel like? And she, her summary statement was, God's word came alive to me. What? You see, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will be with us, empowering us when we stand up in boldness. That God's word will come alive to us in our hearts if we stand up. So she was experiencing supernatural encouragement in that moment. God was fulfilling his promise to be with her. I want that so badly. What could be better? The amazing thing is that, you see, when, when, we, when we bear witness to Jesus, we come to see him better, right? Because the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts. We come to see him better, and we worship him better, which means this is the wash, rinse, repeat of ordinary gospel witness. Because when you bear witness, it ends in worship again. It starts the cycle again. So here's what I'm saying is that the ordinary gospel witness begins with and is fueled by recognition that Jesus has saved my life. That Jesus is Lord of all. That Jesus has defeated death and purchased my life that I may know him. And the gospel witness ends with new life as people respond in faith and deeper intimacy with him. For us, as we partner with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit in searching out sinners and proclaiming hope. So it starts and ends with worship. If you want to see Jesus rightly, if you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, stand up for Jesus. And you'll see him rightly. And the amazing thing is that as you see him rightly, you'll worship him correctly, and that will motivate more mission to the glory of God forever. A positive feedback loop that will spin into eternity. The application is, I want to invite you to pray that God would make the salvation that Jesus offers very real to you in a way that eclipses the current world that you're living in. Pray that God would make resurrection real to you so that you can't go on living your normal life. So real to you that you have to speak. And I actually want to challenge you this week to share your faith in a way that invites response. Uh, you can actually try by just, you can start by just asking your friend, what do you think about Jesus? Do you think that he rose from the dead? Presenting a crisis in an honest, bold way. That's what we're called to do. And if we would do that, we will see the church strengthened and we will experience the power and presence of God in our lives. Do you want that? I want that so bad. Let me pray for us and then we'll take communion. God, I... I pray that you'd make us witnesses to the resurrection like Peter and John. 
you have, Lord, just even as a starting point, would you make the resurrection real to our hearts in a way that we have to talk about it? And that it's actually our joy to talk about it. God, we don't want to live for anything else. Lord, I pray that you would wake us up to the mission that you're on and the, the new life that you are inviting us into, that we could be on mission with you. Father, make us desperately want that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so,